0: You set a hairy, ambitious goal, and you break it down and have a crack. Mm. And all the way through that, you doubt yourself until you don't.
1: Hi there, I'm Holly Ransom and welcome to Coffee Pods. It's time to fire up your day with some fuel for change. We run on a simple hypothesis here, that the humble act of grabbing a coffee with someone inspiring is all that it takes to tap into your ability to go out and be the change that you wanna see in the world. Coffee Potters, today we're talking to radio and TV personality Jules Lund, also the CEO of Tribe, the fastest growing self-serving marketplace, connecting brands with social media influencers. One of the things you may not know about Jules is he's an early protege of a legendary Aussie called Jim Steins, who started the Reach Foundation, with a goal to help young people get the most out of themselves, and a refreshing and challenging take on what vulnerability and authenticity look like. Jules, thank you so much for making the time to have a chat.
0: So happy to be here, Holly.
1: I'm really excited to speak with you. I've followed you, I've watched you on TV for years. Wow. And then radio for that matter. <laughs> so I grew up with your face sort of and your voice um, omnipresent, I feel like, across the Australian <laughs> media landscape. And it wasn't till much later that I, I found out this whole backstory to how you kind of came into being into that whole world. Yeah. I'm fascinated to kind of go back to where like... young Jules Lund. Take us to to a teenager. What were you like?
0: Oh, you wouldn't like it. I had long hair thinking I could look like Brad Pitt in Legends of the Fall. (laughs) Tristan. Uh, And the front of my fringe was bleach blonde and longer. And I wore corduroy that I stole out of Salvation Army bins at the time, thinking that was cool when I was a grungy little Kurt Cobain lover. (laughs) Now I look back and hate myself and the actions I i took i was a loudmouth, and luckily am no longer <laughs> uh, but i was just a attention seeker and wherever i could get that so if that was being destructive um then i would and so at around i think 15 i was probably pretty close to getting booted out of school had a five-year bond for graffiti wow. where i drew a big porky pig with a cop hat on <laughs> um, saying fuck, du police, um, and got caught by a CCTV. So look, I was a I was a ratty teenager. Yep. And um, and I had no real reason to be. I had a great upbringing. Yeah, I was. I'm embarrassed to say, but I'm also very honest. I also had a, a nose ring and a nipple ring.
1: Wow. So I just. Feel like- it's quite the image you're constructing well, I'm in everyone's you, head. I appreciate it. I'm giving
0: it. you the bogan that was me <laughs> at a teenage age. Yeah. And so
1: when when did things start to change? There was it a moment at school, wasn't there, where yeah. all of a sudden someone came in? Yeah, and... yeah.
0: I, it changed immediately, actually. So I was in year nine and I was sitting up the back of a school talk and um, Jim Steins, who uh, was an AFL footballer, played for Melbourne, Um he was Brownlow medalist. Uh, I think he, he holds the record for the most consecutive games ever played. Um, 244 games of football, AFL I'm football. impressed by
1: these sports stats, given you told me you're not a sportsman about two minutes ago. I
0: had to learn these. know, okay, right. Uh, Jim told me that this was part of his <laughs> Tell, intro. Told
1: you enough. Yeah, because I had to introduce
0: them? him, so I, I had to learn them. But um, 244 games of footy. Um, which is not missing a game uh, for 12 years. Wow. And he was ruck. So, for those who don't know too much about Aussie rules, it's a pretty demanding position. Yeah. So, through busted back and crook fingers and the works, um, he was incredible Irishman who came over here at, at 18. So, he, he had had great success um, and he came out to my school to run this workshop with another guy who was a film director and a, um, a drama teacher. Um, Paul Curry and so they weren't very old themselves like 26 27 um, running these workshops Paul had sort of been working with um, teenagers doing some really innovative work there through drama Mm -hmm. and Jim had been running sports camps with teenagers and so they sort of said what is this amalgamation what could it look like if we were trying to empower young people to sort of I I suppose tap into greatness and overcome adversity so it wasn't just kids that were on the street or Mm -hmm or people that were in, you know, we did and the, they had a they were basically promoting a, a course, a six-week course. And they had in there they had everyone from private schools to, you know, those that were living on the street or um, addicted to heroin or living in psychiatric yeah, wow. use, the whole works. And it was just this melting pot. So they promoted it and they went out to all these schools. I sat up the back and tried to rip it to shreds and um, and Jim basically confronted me as, you know, a teacher was about to kick me out. He said, no, I've got this and said, stand up. And we had this exchange he said, what's your name? And I said, Rupert and everyone (laughs) laughed and I was staring him up. But um, he actually just in a few minutes really cut through to me. And um, I often describe it as sort of a slap in the face with a pat on the back because he said, look, there's something about you. You're able to lead this group, um, but where are you leading them? And so um, it was enough for me to turn up to that course. That was 25 years ago and... um, it very quickly changed my life and I, I became fixated by Jim in particular on how he could command an audience. And so I, you know, I followed him around for probably eight years. Like he taught me how to drive a car because, you know, he'd be prepping this um, rotary club speech or teachers seminar, would drive across the countryside, you know, to go out to secondary schools in country Victoria. And um, and so he'd teach me teach me how to drive so I'd be on my L plates going up the Hume and um, and then <laughs> driving I'd, him to a gig exactly yeah. and then I'd sit there and watch this guy and I'd write almost word for word as a you know sixteen year old wow. and I was just yeah as I say I mean taught me how to present TV even though he's never actually presented himself I was very lucky to have both Paul and him and many probably there'd be a million um, teenagers in Australia that have had them as mentors and their protégés Mm. who grew up to become mentors. And it created this foundation called the Reach Foundation that has been incredible for young people in this country.
1: So two things there. I mean, the first one for me, what an apprenticeship. Yeah, Uh, What did you learn from him about how to command an audience? You know, all these these times you sat observing him, watching him at Rotary Club in front of AFL footballers, you name it, what did you learn?
0: Authenticity, I suppose. Like um, if you make yourself vulnerable... Um, that wasn't seen as a weakness that was seen as a way to um, cut through um, to the humanity of whoever was in the audience and so you know we would run workshops like i was 17 18 running workshops for 300 17 18 year olds wow and as i said i had I, I look like an idiot, but that luckily they did too back then, and um, and yeah, I would have my stereo put in my old nineteen seventy six Valiant Chrysler, and I, I just for ten years I just travelled around the state, and it was just stunning. We would run these workshops that were just so incredibly powerful, and back then self development, you know, even just self improvement, anything. You're very ahead of your time. It, well, it was uh, reach um, in those days. It was. Like I would have basically, to paint a picture, I'd do sort of 30 minutes talking about some, you know, having some laughs and getting them on site. And then I'd get them all lying down on the floor, put the lights down and play like um, gladiator type music, you know, movie scores and do these things we called sensories, which is basically... I mean, it's, it's just like a guided meditation. Mm. And then I would walk them through parts of their life, but it was like creating a movie in the head. So it wasn't like, hey, and you're in a bubble and you're floating over a rainforest. It was, you know, imagine someone in this room that is really close to the edge and because of the way this environment treats them, they want to check out. And it, we used to get... Like you couldn't do it these days, but we used to paint really dark pictures and sort of say, who's someone in here that has your back no matter what? Who do you, you know, and so then you'd bring everyone up and they're all in tears, right? Like mm. big, you know, tough kids as well as, and then you'd say, right, who do you want to acknowledge? And, and you would, they would have these amazing, like given the opportunity, these kids were stunning. So they would just go, look, I want to thank Scotty. You know, when I came from that other school, no one liked me here because of the way, you know, I look. And you just never judged me. And, and then they start crying and the person cries. And then, and then you start to turn it towards, right, who someone in here needs, you know, deserves your acknowledgement. And then that's where they subtly start to acknowledge the people that don't get a fair go in the room. Mm. And then they start to go, hey, I just want to acknowledge, you know, I know you sometimes get a tough time. And then they build these people up. I would have done this thousands of times and it was and i still like the other day i was at a servo and the size of this bloke walks over to me i thought he's going to knock my head off and he just comes over with tears in his eyes and just gives me this big hug and just said you came to my school oh i just got goosebumps you know when i was 12. yeah and i i just get the most beautiful still today wow of and i just go it wasn't me mate it was and it was your year level and it really It's the best job I've ever had. I went from that to travel around the globe for Getaway, which is a TV show. (laughs) And everyone said, that's the dream job. But getting out of that room and having that sort of soulful connection with Mm. kids that two hours earlier were sort of just, you know, pretty superficial environment school were grabbing that and actually connecting at Mm. levels that... Oh, it's beautiful. And so that was the heart and soul of Reach. So my development, what Jim taught me was the vulnerability. So they would only go there if I would go there myself. And people want to be vulnerable and they respect and admire that. And sort of 25 years on, it's the same today. I feel
1: like it's just starting to become part of what we're talking about though, right? I, I vulnerability, agree. It's like we've woken up to it in the yeah, last 24 yeah. months, but yeah. it's not practiced all that often still.
0: No, but it, once it's seen as a strength, you know, we always encourage it as a badge of honour of real strength, mm. you know, like weakness, your weakness and, and confronting that and sharing it was just true strength. And at that age, once every teenagers give themselves, give each other permission that it's okay to talk like that, amazing things happen and people's lives are transformed and, um, and they build a foundation of self-belief that is very rare for teenagers because it's at a time where your, your doubt seems to – starts to blow back in your face, mm. you know, because if you're doubting yourself, you start to act out of insecurity like I was, being a smart ass and smashing things, and then your world becomes that and then everyone treats you like that. Mm. It's hard to break that cycle. And the other – I suppose the other thing that Jim taught me was just generally over life was – the greatest things in life come with uncertainty. And so to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. And so that was a massive part. Like all that he had succeeded with in his life came from um, the courage to just leave the comfort zone behind, you Mm. know. And that's where all the growth lived. And so it doesn't make a very fun life sometimes, but it makes a, a rewarding one and you have a different sense of pride. And so ever since then, I've always being drawn to the fringes and the unknown and the darkness and lean in and try new things mm. um it's all the the scary good parts of life i don't know why i do it i wish i could just <laughs>
1: well i was just going to say that yeah you because know, it's easy i feel like to, to say those things and it's another thing to do them like how mm. do you practice the discipline of continually going to the vulnerable place and continually putting your hand up or, or stepping forward into the things that make you uncomfortable so those listening who are going, okay, I've, I've heard this enough. I'm yeah, ready to okay. have a crack.
0: What can you do? Well, it all starts with what do you really, like I've always said, don't wish for life, design it. And so yeah. I've always been really practical about how to design. The, so I'll give an example. At that stage of my life, um, I wanted to take this to the masses. So I did these talks and went, shit, I want to take this bigger. And so I thought mass media um, was the way to go. So I then started to move into TV and radio. And I created a radio show around Rich. I called it Dash. And, and the concept was from this old poem that I heard, which was... The dash. Yeah, like the two dates on your tombstone are not nearly as important as the dash in between, so make the most One of, my of it. Favorites. Yeah, and so I just loved that. And I thought, all right, let's talk about people's dash. And so I created this weekly show on uh, our um, national network here, which is, um, it was Fox FM in Melbourne, Today FM, the Today Network. And, um, and the idea was it was late night for teenagers that wanted to just connect with something and talk about something great. Right now, you got to imagine back then, there was no such thing as podcasts. Mm. So now every podcast is, can you break down your life journey and not talk about what yeah. you've achieved, but how? Who were the challenges? Who supported you? Yep. Tell me about the doubts. What about your fears? Like it's every Tim Ferriss. It's every podcast, right? Mm-hmm. But back then, I was trying to put it on commercial hit radio. And it just in three minute grabs, you know, between... Pink tickets no and and Green Day, but we were once again well ahead of our time in terms of that stuff. And young people would call up and ask people like entrepreneurs or um, footballers or pop stars or adventurers like Jesse Martin, you know, mm-hmm. sat around the world at eighteen, or um, you know, Mandy Moore of those days, and and yeah, really just um, understand it. So what I then did was I said I want to. I then said, all right, my purpose now. I'm talking about creating these big lives and I was talking about the journey, all right, what is mine? And so I just sat with what is the the, the absolute dream gig? What is the thing that I, could, I couldn't go any higher in my head? And in my head was, and I wrote down in my journal, to be the getaway host, um, twenty to twenty fives, you know, because I was twenty at the time. The adventurous host, and I wrote that down, and then I just literally just broke down. Right, what do I got to do to do that? So that's what I mean about being really practical. I mm-hmm. just had a twelve month plan, and I broke it down into months, weeks, days, into hours. Wow,
1: really? That yeah. level
0: of granularity. Oh, I and this is, and I'm still obsessive about this stuff. But I love it. So I went. I just did a pie chart and what, what are all the d- things I have to do? So the first thing is I had to look different, right? Because I had a big beer gut from, you know, just drinking all through the week and, um, and toasted sandwiches, watching Jerry Springer and my undies. And um, so I just went, right, i gotta, I got to look different. i got to look fitter. And so I, I got a personal trainer and I, you know, because I, I had to save money. So I saved 10 grand, right, at a surf shop. And I just went, right, that's going to fund this. Then I read all the books. So education. So I read everything from bloody um, David Beckham to autobiographies from Oprah Winfrey and TV presenters. And then I um, did memory courses, like how could I remember scripts? And then I watched all the TV shows from all the presenters I want, and I on VHS recorded them, wrote down their scripts, then learnt those scripts. I wow. did every TV presenters course in the country. Once I ran and driving around up to NIDA in Sydney from Melbourne. Once I ran out of those, I did. Um, acting courses and voiceover courses. So, and then what I did was, it all sort of culminated up to this point where I had to put it all into a package, right? It was a showreel. Now, for those who know, showreels, people put a few hundred bucks into it. I put another 10 grand wow. into this three minute VHS tape. I got, I, I said, I need to look like I've been on TV. So I hired a channel nine crew. Like I didn't know anyone there. I got graphic designers to do the outfit, um, like the outside of the case. I got stickers on the inside. I um, I got photographers to do professional shots. I wanted to. Do, I wanted Channel Nine to imagine that I was just drag and drop, like plug and play. Get him in. He's already there. He's done. Yep, built and for us. Yeah, and then. But the hardest part was the doubt, because all through that process. Like, I was terrified. I didn't think I had the skills. Why would I? I think that's amazing
1: because hearing you talk, like there seems to be such a level of, I've got this in the way no, that you're talking I about gotta,
0: it. No, I've got to do this because I don't yeah. have this. I've got to overcompensate. I've got to, okay. because I just, you, you don't forget at the time, you're looking at all these other people on TV going, how good are they? Yeah. Like, I could never be like them. That's what you're thinking. But, but then I went, all right, I have to understand my doubts and my, the devil on my shoulder. So I got the spirit that's going, why not? You know, if any, you know th- they started where you did, they had doubts too, and look at them. And then the other half's going, no chance. You get distracted easy, you're this, you're that. So I confronted the doubts, right, one by one. So I wrote them down. And so one of them was, all right, how can you be a TV presenter if when you're talking to a camera, you're so hyper aware that any movement around you or someone talking or a bird flying, you just have to start your script again. Like, you know that, because you're talking to camera and it wasn't natural then. These days, TV presenting, there's no such thing. Everyone's talking in a LinkedIn video, mm-hmm. like it's-
1: mm-hmm. People are so conditioned to it now, and aren't they? Just, yeah, But back then, then it was like,
0: videos. you're looking at a black box. You don't, it doesn't have eyebrows, it doesn't, it doesn't smile, yeah. you know, like-
1: give you anything back. No,
0: so I, I got my cousin and we did it, my, because I, I still had these weaknesses after doing all the courses. And so I had to create my own curriculum. And it was over, I don't know, six weeks or something, but it was different things. He would write scripts for me, send them, I'd have dot points, I'd have two minute video, you know, Mm -hmm. two minute ones I had to learn. And it got down to me, him holding the handy cam and me standing in the doorway of a supermarket at the back where the, 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 the automatic doors are coming from both sides and it's peak hours. So people are trying to get past me with trolleys. And I would stand there like an annoying prick and I would be doing it going down the line. And I figured if I could stand there, it's basically... I love it. Take it to the extreme. It's like the montages out of Van Damme movies or something, you know, you're like trying... That was my pathetic TV training. It was like all this stuff was happening and could I overcome it? Now, after a while, I'd trained that enough that as soon as I was out on like an audition or something, my brain would just go, oh, you've had worse and you conquered it. So... I didn't even obsess over, that little devil had nothing on me. And so the other one was like, I was embarrassed that people would see me out in public, right, talking to a camera.
1: Oh, gosh, how did you Friends? take that one on?
0: Well, I stood up on a bin across the road from Chapel Street from Jam Factory because I thought, where is the spot that most people, back then, I'd, you know, in Melbourne.
1: Yeah, It's like hangout.
0: Yeah, it's like a hangout joint. And um, so he was on one side of Chapel Street and I was, on, I was standing on a bin on the other talking over traffic, right? Just having a chat. <laughs> no, doing pieces to cameras, just like, hey, welcome to the show, blah, blah, blah. And then once again, that little voice. So I got up, created this sort of showreel. Yeah. And then at about eight months into it, I think I'd produced like 250 copies of it. And then through another opportunity, someone said, hey, I'm meeting the guys at Channel 9. Do you have any footage of yourself? And I was like, yeah, I think I've got something lying around here. <laughs> And uh, I sent it, and I sent him three copies, and I said, you know, can you leave them there? And I just wait for the guys at nine. And within a month, I had the getaway kick.
1: Unreal. And what age were you? Because it was 20 to 25 I was Yeah,
0: yeah, I got it at um, 23, and I still have like 247 VHS tapes sitting under <laughs> mum and dad's bed. You don't, really? Yeah. Love that, that's Cause awesome. Because I didn't, it was, it was fascinating. So in terms of, in, in, in answering your question about the, what do you do today, you set a hairy, ambitious goal. Break it down. And you break it down and have a crack. Mm. And all the way through that, you doubt yourself until you don't.
1: And you know, it's interesting, one of the things that fascinates me is firstly the granularity of your goal setting, but then the kind of, the just sheer discipline of the way that you cracked at pursuing your goal. What for you have been, like even that notion of sitting with your journal and writing down what your doubts are and then one by one taking them on. These are not things I I don't feel like we get taught anywhere to go and do. But I can understand even hearing it, and I've done something not too dissimilar, how profoundly helpful it is. What are the most significant habits you've built or exercises you feel like you've been encouraged or you've taken yourself on that have helped you kind of do some of the work to unleash that potential that's within you?
0: I'll do anything. You know, like, so the first thing is I actually love the process of it. And I I feel more confident if I know that I've done everything I could.
1: And has that always been the case? Or was that something reach almost built into you?
0: I remember crying as a 13-year-old to my year eight teacher about... I was always pretty obsessive about the A-pluses, you know. So, sadly, I've got that perfectionism and... um, Inbuilt. Yeah. And it's not great. Like, I mean, it's been a gift and a curse, but I've had to manage it more than benefit Yeah, I've had to manage it and it's because it disempowers other people because I can micromanage. Like it's all great, you know, me, that's why I used to do me in my valley and go into my school talks because it was just me, lone wolf. I could do it exactly my way. As soon as I had to go into radio in particular and work as a team, I had a lot of trouble with that because I'm controlling. And so now that I have, you know, we've got a tribe, we've got... um, God, would you know, 70 odd people in five cities around the world, and also I hired a CEO to be my boss. That was very difficult for someone who's as controlling as me. And I only think I could have done that at the age I did, which was 35, 36. I think two years earlier, I wasn't mature enough to do something like that to actually say, you know, because this is, you know, I recruited Ant out of. Like out of a lineup, really he didn't know too much. It was like an arranged marriage. I sat across and said, Right. And I'd sort of crafted this concept of the business for sort of a couple of years before that. So um, it was a massive leap of faith, and it's worked out to be the greatest piece of the entire adventure me and him and oh, our companionship, great. and how much we invest in each other, and how much we have developed each other into a different, because we're so different. You know, I've become more like him. He's become more like me. <laughs> so, in terms of um, rituals and habits, I make a lot of lists and then I just kick them off. And I'm pretty obsessive about it. <laughs> I don't think that's all that healthy either. But, and I'm pretty, yeah, you know, I'm pretty disciplined. But it's only been more recently that I've actually invested in better habits across the board. I would redline, whereas now, well, what's redlining? Oh, just burning okay right you know yeah going going hard yeah like you know my getaway boss he's just saying not every story is a grand final (laughs) like some of them are just tone
1: it down occasionally
0: yeah yeah I just
1: you can just produce this one
0: yeah which I don't do very well so um but now what I'm investing in is sleep I'm investing in you know the habit of sleep and doing that really well and I actually I was really proud of myself yesterday morning you know Thursday morning, big week, and I got in the shower and I wasn't... I didn't feel like a lug of metal, you know, like I didn't feel exhausted, like I'm dragging dragging myself because I have been disciplined with my sleep. And if the sleep isn't there, I just can't out-talk the self-talk, you know, the negative doubts and and the struggles. And So sleep is important. Drinking water, um, exercise, eating the right amount of food not drinking too much alcohol. Like these are only things that I'm learning now. And then meditation. Mm. And I've only just since October done the mindfulness more and then just working on all those things.
1: What was the catalyst for kind of the wellbeing adventure you've gone on?
0: I got very toxic at work for exactly what I just described. Things weren't going well. I said, I'm going to do everything in my power to save this. I had other people that I expected would just be as stupid as I was. In terms of their recessiveness and Yeah, and they, they were normal. Yeah, <laughs> And I... You were the outlier. And so I sort of, you know, and some things didn't go so well. And so rather than sitting in the passenger seat and them driving their departments and things, I just reach over and grab the steering wheel, completely disempower them, sent a, a, a shudder of fear through the culture of, you know, if we don't do this. And my aunt uh, had to sit me down in a park in in Manhattan and, and and say the most, well, he didn't really say this, but basically the message was, you know, the most toxic thing about this culture is you. And I was like, you know what, you're right. And I knew it because I'd, I just, there was this perfect storm leading up and I just wasn't managing it. It was just mm. on top of me. So rather than me on top of the wave, I'm just getting dumped. And to be honest, it was out of care because everyone's like, your anxiety, your stress, and all that. And so you'll love this. So I then went, okay. So I wrote a three-page list. Of you Yes. <laughs> and, and I went, I'm going to fix this. And so I put everything on that list. i got to meditate every day. I've got to not have coffees before tough meetings because I'll just be, you know, hyper. hyper. Yep. Um, I have to prioritise sleep ahead of work. I have to read The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. That I is have a to, great book. Yeah. And so... And and there was, I have to apologise to those people I disempowered. I have to declare my new commitment to my own health and the health of the company, to the whole company. And so I spoke to them and explained to them, and and it was really good. It was a calibration there because my company is sort of four years old. At the start, it was just me, and its entire survival relied on me. It was a baby, right? You're but now then, not a baby. Yeah, yeah, as it grows and becomes an adolescent, you know what happens when you're a parent and you're being a helicopter parent and you're micromanaging? It just you stifle its growth, and then they push you away. Mm-hmm. That's what it happens if it's in its early twenties and you're you're treating it like it's a baby. So it's the exact same thing with a founder and a company. And so I just went, oh yeah, I've got to let it grow and has have some independence. And then I had to confront some some limiting beliefs, which was everything that we do wrong is a refl- personal reflection of me. Like if we underdeliver, right? It's, a, it's, on a, it's on me, which it's not, right? Mm-hmm. It's a company. And then that everything is just life or death. It's the, it's the grand final thing. Like every moment is the grand final. So I just had to go, nah, it's not possible to be that controlling and have that high expectation of quality over something that is bigger than you.
1: Mm, Absolutely. Have you gone on the journey like I mean having you kind of describe yourself as a lone wolf you're in collaborative roles in radio and TV but not at the helm of a business employing people building teams thinking about culture delivering product. How's your experience as an entrepreneur been? How have you found that that learning journey?
0: Well the last four years it's been life-changing and actually personality changing because I came from radio so before that I'd breakfast show like i was with mel b one of the spice girls and comedians and sophie monk and fifi box and all these great talented mad people right Mm -hmm. and on radio it's the most shocking wins like you just shock each other you create awkward bombs you can't constantly antagonizing because it's the sizzle and spark and chemistry around drama and makes for good listening doesn't it it does but guess what when you're starting a company that is the wor- one of the worst destabilizing qualities you can have, and so I would come into this thing, and who I was was a really inappropriate. Like everything, you know, like I would do it for humor. But four years ago, well, five years ago, you know, there were still racist, sexist jokes. Like it was, and and I was, I was affirmed for having those, being sleazy on air, and making gags and mate, the world has changed. And thankfully, mm. I, I very quickly found myself incredibly accountable for other people's comfort. And, and so I just took on that challenge and, um, and with help of other people, because the awareness is the blind spots, is the tough thing, because you can no, nah, that's fine. That's and you justify it like you have in the past. And they go like, it's not. And they're right. So I've gone on a massive evolution around that. And it doesn't really stop. But I'm not the one building the teams as much. Operationally, that is our CEO and our senior leadership team. And I, I sit in a bit as a founder, I work on the vision, the horizon, mm-hmm. and then I work strangely on the one percenters um, and uh, the brand, the marketing, what I want the product to be. And I'm good from a psycho, the psychology to be able to go, right. i right, I'm gonna put myself in the perspective of our brands or our content creators. You know, from a comms point of view, this mm-hmm. is how we're going to pitch it to them. You know, because it's all storytelling, and basically that's all I've done through life, whether it was through graphic design, storytelling, or TV, radio, social. So um, the middle bit, which is what you really describe, which is building the teams and the culture. I mean, I can contribute to the culture as mm-hmm. a wisecracking founder, but, <laughs> but no, that that comes from far more experienced people than me, and that's I actually love that when people. I've been really tough in the past to earn my trust and I, I put people through the ringer a bit, you know, mm. but once you got my trust, you're good. But I think I've raised the bar too high in the past and I think it scares people. Mm. And so I, I think I have disempowered and not be a great leader at times, but I'm certainly on the journey of trying to become a better leader. But it turns out it's harder than I thought because it's really easy being a leader when things are going well. And I've always seen myself as a leader. And Jim said that, you're a leader in, as yeah, a 15 year old. Yeah,
1: 15, yeah.
0: It turns out that as a leader, I used to succeed by whipping myself, you know, what I would expect out of myself, I'd really punish myself. Perfectionism. Yeah. And so then when you extend your vision to other people, you can't treat them that way, obviously. And, um, you know, they say a, a good leader is those, a measure of a good leader is how many other leaders you develop, and I haven't been great at that. You know, um, so that's my journey. Mm
1: you mentioned blind spots before and and kind of that it, it starts with the self-awareness being raised and often you mm. can't do that for yourself right that's someone mm. else helping you out
0: yeah and it's it's horribly uncomfortable it even is, though we it? should ask for it totally and that's what I wanted to ask
1: you about because I feel like it's so easy and I've met leader after leader in my time who surround themselves with really well-intentioned people are yes people and they're people that won't have the conversations with them about blind yeah. spots and look there's a comfort to that I understand why people sit in that zone but it's not the yeah. space that grows you no. um you know Jim was obviously a really significant early mentor but how how important have the people you surround yourself with those mentors been and how intentional have you been about making sure that you get diverse perspectives or people oh. that challenge you in that mix
0: look if i to be honest no one wants people that call you on your shit yeah but all you need is people that call you on your shit. And so, and you know that. <laughs> totally. Like, you this want that growth. With, you know it, but you don't want to know it. But like, I hate it because it's embarrassing and you feel like you're a dog, you know, like, you know, when you're the, the dog's naughty and mm-hmm. that look on your face, I just have that look so often. And, and because of what I'm doing, like I welcome people. I very much welcome people to do it. When it's happening, it feels humiliating and I feel embarrassed and vulnerable. And I feel shamed at times, right? That's how I feel. They're not shaming me, but I feel, Mm -hmm. but geez, it's critical. Like Jim Stein's my mentor, he passes away, right? He passed away, God, it must be seven years ago at age 45. It was a three year battle with cancer. I think in the end he had 26 tumors through his body. So, and they, some of them were as big as a grapefruit. you know, like, and golf balls. And, like, when they describe tumours, you think of, like, a pea. I don't it's, think of grapefruits. And so, and and you, I think you've got five areas you can have cancer. And he, so it's, like, blood, brain, bone, skin, organ, maybe? I think he had, like, three or four out of those, right? So, wow. and and so through that period, because he was my best mate and also... I hadn't spent a lot of time with him because I was just we were both obsessed with being busy, right, mm. at the time. So this sort of brought us back in, and you know that's when I was I had my little Casio camera before there smartphones, and I was just following him around, taking him to all these things. I started filming it because he was being so funny and mucking around in the hospital. He's about to go in and get surgery, until I had enough footage that um, I was like, we should do something. And so Paul Curry, who founded Reach, the film director, I was like, mate, we should do something, and we. Produced the most stunning documentary of his last few years and I mean we thought we were building this thing as a heroic story and it was a heroic story but he didn't succeed and he passed away but he got to watch this thing with his family That's this funny. celebration of all of his friends and family and he was it's called every heartbeat's true you should check it out but it it is it was it's just this he's because he's so it's so cliche but he's so wise like he was always a student of life like he loved learning but he was such a powerful teacher right and so his learnings through these last few years were fascinating and it was such a beautiful thing to watch he sat around with all his best friends and watched his life get celebrated like it's like attending your own funeral it was amazing unreal because he used to call me on my shit all the time and i hated it right so funnily enough, one of the other kids that came with me on the very first night, um, so Jim and Paul had gone out to another school that day to promote the course, and they went to CBC St Kilda. One of the kids there was a guy called um, Sam Cavana, mm-hmm. right, Sammy Cav, and um, who now works with Adam Ferry at Thinkabell. Mm-hmm. He's, he he's was, a good guy. And he, was the, you know, he, he worked with Hamish and Andy to create one of the most, well, the most successful radio show in history. Um, so when he was when I got Dash and I created Dash, um, we were sort of 22 at the time, I was working with him at Reach and I rang him and he was doing a criminology degree and I said, mate, I've got this opportunity to do this radio show. What do you know about radio? And he goes, I listen to Triple J and I work at a radio, uh, CD shop, so I don't listen to whatever you're talking about. So I brought him in and he stayed in that for 16 years wow. and he just became I would say, the most powerful person in Australian radio. So... He was also the first kid. So me and him are best mates. (laughs) And um, when Jim passed, he he probably hates me saying this, but like my best mate is my mentor now because he has the courage and he calls me on my shit and he does it gently. He's the most enlightened person that I know. And and I've given him permission, you know, because he knows, because I'm always thanking him for giving me good feedback. So he knows he's got that permission and he's very kind with it. But he is... My mentor, and probably my only mentor. Mm. Um, and, you know, he's my age, but um, he's smarter. <laughs> <laughs> Emotionally, psychologically, and he's more disciplined and he's awesome.
1: That's awesome. I love that. What a great best mate to be able yeah. to Just give a shout out to. That's yeah. unreal. Yeah. What do you think is the best bit of advice that you've been given over the course of your career and life to date?
0: You know, when Jim was dying, he, he, it was very clear that he had seen the light and the reason I say this is the best advice is because I'm not really taking it, and so I'm at odds with it. Okay. Um, he just said, like he, you know, he was a busy, ambitious guy. Everything that I just described to you, you know, um, that's why we connected, because mm-hmm. he saw my hunger, right? And so he invested in me because he knew I was a sponge. And he was exactly the same. What he achieved and how he did it. Like there'd be times I'd, you know, I went to Ireland one Christmas, and he would literally, I think, He would literally be running up this craggy rock thing in Ireland where literally he would say to his mum, pick me up at the top and you have to be there at this time or I will die. And he would go running up this thing in freezing cold, you know, like almost doing like a marathon up this hill into the fog. And I've been out there and there's just nothing but sheep and these rocks. And he'd just go up there. I think they spread some of his ashes up there. Wow! And he was so disciplined with his footy. Like he won the Brownlow Medal the next morning. Uh, Is that someone training, mate. Next morning, someone I remember someone telling me, uh, the next morning after he won the Brownlow Medal, he's out there at like five thirty AM running along Beaconsfield oh Parade. So he would basically say, with all of these ambitions and his, him applying himself like this, he you know he, he felt like he ignored his your wife and kids a little bit, you know. Mm-hmm. Now, he didn't. He was he was a, a fantastic, brilliant father, but he still went, I got addicted to being busy. And he, he once told me, because he had this big-ass diary, right, and he just lived in his diary. That's what he was doing when I was driving him. You know, he was sitting there figuring out his week. How could he fit everything in it? The funny thing is, he would see a Thursday night to be blank, and so he'd fill it. But that was where he's – you don't put in your diary – sit down with my kids, go for a walk with my wife. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, it's not scheduled. And so he used to just talk about there were periods where he probably lost perspective. And so he just said to me that. He just said, and here I am with the exact same problem, probably egotistical um, ambition to try to create something great. And when, when everything that I need and love and should value is right in front of me. So how... How much sacrifice do I really have to make? Mm. And so you got one life. The dash. Yeah, you got one dash. Make the most of it. Mm-hmm. Don't waste your potential. Like how, how if you spread your wings, how far can you reach? Yeah, what do you think of that? How do you? Well, I think the, the challenging
1: part is no one can work out that sweet spot in the in that juggle, but you. And as long as you can be at a place where you're at peace with whatever that combination looks like in terms of prioritizing the people that you love and care about and running hard and feeling purposeful and passionate about what it is that you're doing. Like I, I, I was having this conversation with my partner the other night because we were just we were talking about the, the divergence of choices that people start to make as they grow up and get older and, and get approached for, you know, increasing positions of seniority and responsibility. And at the same time, you know, growing families are falling in love uh, and, and just how individual where you put yourself on that spectrum needs to be. It needs to be for your own reasons, not for someone else's projection, mm. not for society's norms, not because you think you've got to because, you know, of ego or status yeah, or it's whatever really it might to, be.
0: It's hard. It's hard, hard think... to navigate what you truly value. Completely. And Sammy Cab, who I just mentioned, is bloody good at that. Yeah. Because he gets – he's always had offers that I just go – my ego just hears that and just goes, yes – and he's like, no, I'm not going to take it. And I'm like, what? Because I know what I truly value and this would do this, this, this mm. and this. And I just go, God, you're brave. And also the conviction is great. But I would, it's think, impressive. I would think I would think, a lot of the people listening now, I, I think they all would be juggling with that work-life balance, totally. right? But I also think when I used to sit around the courses, so we'd have like these six-week courses, a couple hours every week, and you'd have 30 kids, like the one that I described. And that would be from all... You know, walks of life, and often people would talk about the challenges in their life. And if you went around the group, if everyone had a challenge, twenty-eight of them would have been because of their father. Yeah, right. It was just wow. It was incredible, and the damage that fathers cause, men cause, it was horrible. Like it was either an absent father because they're too busy, mm. or it was an, it was a present father who was smacking them. Mm. It was or it wasn't even abuse to them, it was just abuse to themselves, you know, being alcoholic, or abuse to their mum, or, oh my God, or they just disappeared. So for me, you know, be the change you wanna see in the world. Right now I often go, God, you're a selfish bastard, you know, like you're not really doing much for the community, but I'm also going, right, I've got this job and the rest of my time my charity or my community is my kids. Yeah, you Like guess. I've got to mm. be a good father. And if I'm a good father, then I'm actually contributing a great deal to this world because if everyone was able to be a good dad, it seems that there's a lot of good to come from it.
1: That's, I, I think, such a profound point. And I, I, too, I can't even imagine hearing that consistency in that reflection oh. would be, wow. I mean, that's something to, to think about what that means.
0: Every psychologist says daddy issues yeah like, no matter. I know, but it's kind of
1: almost flippantly thrown around i mean to, to but, but generally
0: yeah. i wonder how many people listening have has got have all it all seems to stand <laughs> so with dads
1: well i wanted to ask you about it. how old are your girls now
0: they're nine and six
1: so with them and particularly as someone who has spent so much of their life at the forefront of kind of, you know, developing young people and what are the skills and tools and experiences that they need to have to be, you know, the greatest version of themselves possible. What what do you hope to give your girls more
0: than anything else? Freedom and low expectations.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I love that. No um, helicoptering.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm pretty proud of myself so far, but admittedly they're not sort of aiming for stuff. But I, I wonder whether I... When they go, I want to do that, and then I see how they go about doing that, and then they go, "Oh, it's not happening." And I go, and then I I'm like, well, that's because you got to do this, 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 this. Yeah. You know, like you got to
1: work for harder, or yeah, longer, or something. I, yeah, I, yeah,
0: and I and I want them to get what they want in life, but I don't want them to do that. I don't want them to apply themselves in ridiculous ways. So I think uh, I've been lucky that that hasn't, I haven't, it hasn't triggered that. And I hope by the time there, I'm enlightened or evolved enough that I can actually manage my mouth. Mm. Uh, what do I want to give them? Well, I want to teach them about courage. And what I see courage is is just that, that ability to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. I, I just, my life always just seems to come back to that.
1: One final question, Jules. I'm very conscious of your time. Uh, We love to try and move people listening from the podcast from being in that state of being inspired and fired up from listening to everything that you've shared into taking action. Yep. If you could encourage people with a call to action after listening to this, what would you
0: encourage them to go do? Well, it's very easy in life to choose things based on opportunity, like almost to be reactive And you can go down paths that are good, fine, but sometimes they have actually led you away from what you would actually write at the top of a blank page. And so back to what I said at the start, like wish for happiness or design it. I'd be interested to see what would happen if people just took out their notes in the app, their phone or or a piece of paper and just, just went, start again. Like what would it look like now knowing your passions and your values, what makes your heart sing, what you don't want to do, what you need and what you just thought you wanted. I'd be interested to see what people would get. So the call to action is just to play with that, exercise and and literally reflect in it in a unique way and just see what you get. And if it's misaligned, don't panic but just Think about it because I only got one dash. <laughs> I love it.
1: That's a great bit of advice. I look forward to taking that challenge on myself actually. I feel like it's a something you can never do enough of. You need to kind of create the space to periodically do.
0: It's scary actually.
1: Well, Jules, thank you so much for making the time to have a chat today. Congratulations on the phenomenal success that you've had in your career to date and the journey that Tribe's on. It's amazing watching it from afar and the momentum it's built in such a short period of time and to hear the plans of of how it's, you know, taking the globe by storm. I look forward to seeing where it goes over the next couple of years. But above all, thank you for the openness and honesty with which you've shared. I feel like this is going to, land for people and resonate and challenge them in a really, really deep way. And that's because of how you showed up and how you shared. So thank you for that.
0: That was a beautiful conversation. Thanks, Holly.
1: Thanks for listening. I hope you're feeling fired up to be the change that you want to see in the world. I'd love to hear about the impact you're having. So hit me up on social and let me know what you're working on. And if you've enjoyed the conversation, why not keep it alive and share it with someone in your world? I'm Holly Ransom. Let's grab a coffee again soon.